Hi again, Medical Education Podcast listeners. This is Kevin Eva, the editor-in-chief of the journal, coming to you today from both a sunny Vancouver and an even sunnier Stockholm, Sweden. At least that's how it looks on my screen is uh, Agnes Elmberger, whose voice you'll hear momentarily. She's a physician who's completing an internship in clinical genetics at Karolinska University Hospital and a researcher at the Karolinska Institute. And I asked to speak with her because Agnes has a paper coming out in the July 2023 edition of the journal entitled Faculty Development Participants' Experiences of Working with Change in Clinical Settings. Agnes is the day's approach there longest of the year. I'm thrilled that you're able to take the time, even though it's nighttime, sort of, and very bright there still. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward. And as you say, it's bright and sunny still, so I'm still awake. <laughs> well, I'll do my best to not put you to sleep in the next 15 minutes, but let's see how we go. So faculty development, you note early on in your paper that we do a lot of it in this field and most problems that anybody ever identifies, the reflexive solution is we need more faculty development. What was it about that whole domain of activity that you thought was a problem that needed to be addressed? I mean, it's a long story from the beginning, but it started when I was a medical student and I felt that sometimes the teaching that I had as a student in clinical setting was really good and sometimes or the majority of time was quite bad. So that's what I wanted to start to do research in this area. And I found more about faculty development and that you can actually train people to become better teachers. But then the problem or the thing that interested me was that there was a lot of research on faculty development, trying to evaluate it, trying to see what participants think after they've been to activities or trying to see, you know, what they've learned but then there wasn't as much research trying to understand if there was any changes in, you know, the teaching practices in the clinic. So that's the interface that I was interested in knowing more about. So the change of the individual's behavior in the clinic, or do you mean you know, change more generally in terms of how the curriculum or the educational practices roll out? That's a good question. So there's been a lot of research focusing on the actual individuals that goes to these programs or courses. And you can see that they gain new knowledge and skills. They appreciate these activities and they change their attitudes towards teaching. But I was more interested in seeing if the changes that they experience uh, in their personal teaching, if that change can also be seen on the level of, you know, the working group at their clinical workplaces or on a more organizational level. So that is the kind of change that we looked at specifically in this paper. Can you give us an example or two of the types of change or how that might conceivably filter through the full working group when it's individuals who are involved in such development activities? So usually what we see in Sweden and also elsewhere is that people go alone on these kind of activities. So there's one individual, perhaps maybe two from the same workplace going to programs or courses, usually because they might be extra interested in teaching and learning compared to their clinical colleagues. And 
when they get back to their workplaces, they often have difficulties sharing what they've learned um, in these faculty development activities. And we were curious about to hear what kind of changes they they felt that they could enact. But what we actually found was that there were quite few changes on you know, more of a group level that, that they could actually work with. So the changes that they mentioned when we talked to them was more of a personal level, how they interacted with students, how they gave feedback to students, but not in terms of the curriculum or the activities that they had for students at the workplaces. And so you also highlight early on in the paper that you're thinking about change as being influenced by contacts, as you just alluded to. How did you try to account for whether the the change was something that the participants were bringing from their faculty development versus something that they went to the faculty development because there was a more collective desire to change something? Also a very good question. And that was hard to do. And I won't say that we to 100% could say that all the changes or in the interviews, the changes that people were talking about were 100% linked to participating in faculty development. Because what we, what we did was we didn't look at one specific program. So we didn't choose participants that had participated in a program and invited them for interviews. But we wanted to see people that were more commonly participating in faculty development. So perhaps you could say experienced participants that had gone to several courses and programs. We hypothesized that these people might be more able to perform changes compared to people that maybe just went once to a short teacher training course. So the participants that we talked to were not drawn from one specific program, and therefore it was difficult to say that the changes that we were talking about correlated to one program. But in the interviews, we asked them to exemplify and link the things that they were talking about and their experiences to the courses or activities that they have participated in. One of the unique, well, at least relatively rare strengths of your study is that you did it across two very different countries, Sweden and South Africa. Why did you choose to do this cross-culturally and what made South Africa an interesting comparator for you? Yeah, so setting up the study, as we've mentioned a bit earlier, we lean towards theories of change that highlight the aspect of context, culture, norms, and social aspects in workplaces and how that affects change. And so we wanted to include people from different contexts, and we thought that it would be a good idea to take people from different countries. And then we had a collaboration with researchers at Stellenbosch University in South Africa that also had done a lot of research on faculty development. So from that perspective, the choice of South Africa was quite convenient. And then the medical program and the medical school at Stellenbosch is very similar in terms of size, in terms of how the medical program is organized, the curriculum. So the schools are quite similar in that sense, which we thought could enable comparisons between these two sites, despite that they were completely different countries. So that's why 
we chose that specific site. Was there generally more similarity or more differences when you actually got into looking at these issues between the two sites? It was much more similarities than we expected. So in terms of like methods and, and the data analysis, we analyzed the data sets separately. So we first analyzed the Swedish data set and then the South African data sets. But doing that, we realized that the results were very similar. So as a final step, we concluded the results from both study sites. So the results are actually presented as one set based on both the South African and Swedish participants. Okay. And so from that set, what would you most want to highlight for other people? What was most interesting to you that you didn't know when you went into the study? I think the most interesting thing, and especially in terms of thinking further along or for the future for faculty development, is that these individuals expressed very limited abilities to influence teaching taking place in their workplaces. So they had difficulties trying to implement what they've learned in faculty development in order to improve the teaching taking place where they were working. And they highlighted that is related to a lot of different things in the clinical setting. So that they didn't have uh, mandate. These people that we interviewed had designated educational roles. So they were not just, you know, supervising as part of their day-to-day job, but they had educational roles that they had been assigned, but there was no formal mandate attached to those roles, which made it hard for them to drive change. It was also about not having the time. So they were extremely aware that their clinical colleagues had as a primary job to do clinical service and they could see how burdened they were from that and they didn't want to put extra burden on them by saying you know what I think we're going to switch it up here and do peer learning and all the changes that that would involve they didn't want to put that on their colleagues so there was a sense of responsibility towards their colleagues and also that they felt that teaching and Education wasn't highly prioritized. So these were things that you were talking about regularly in the community. And therefore, it was also difficult to try to engage people in change. So they felt difficulties in acting change. And a lot of that came from different factors around them in their workplaces. And did they seem to perceive that as a missed opportunity or was it just accepted as part of the reality of working in a challenging environment? I got the sense and a lot of them explicitly said that this is not our responsibility. It's not our responsibility to change how people are teaching or to improve others' teaching. So they had a sense of acceptance towards that. Okay, this is how it is. And I will try to do the things that I can do and improve the things that I can improve. But for the rest, that's not, you know, my table. And I think that was interesting seeing that these were people that, as I said, they had educational roles. And in some cases, they had quite, you know, senior educational roles. And one could discuss whether or not it is their 
responsibility or not. And so what do you think, having spoken with all these people and going back to your fundamental interest in improving education through faculty development, have you gained any additional insights in terms of how we could make faculty development more broadly impactful? Definitely. And I think the key thing that comes from this is that, you know, we deliver so much faculty development. And in some cases, focusing on, you know, basic concepts of teaching and learning and teaching practices is enough. And that's good. But in some cases, I think we should also incorporate more change management and support people, support our participants in faculty development in taking on roles as change leaders and sort of advocates for teaching and learning within their workplaces, because those are the people that we can reach through faculty development. And those are the people that we meet, but they in turn have, you know, the contact with the clinical workplaces. So I think we need to support participants in trying to enact change so that we can improve the clinical teaching out there. So helping them develop their own skills and as part of that, developing their capacity to relay the ideas to others and promote positive change. Exactly, yeah. yeah. That sounds like a very promising note to end on. And I'm sure as you continue your research, we'll get further you know, down into that rabbit hole. So I'm going to suggest that we tie things up there and... We'll do that by just reminding our listeners that the paper we've been discussing is called Faculty Development Participants' Experiences of Working with Change in Clinical Settings. Agnes Elmberger is the lead author on the work, and you'll find it in the July 2023 issue of Medical Education. Agnes, thanks again so much, and good luck with the rest of your studies. Thank you for having me.